Hello, welcome back to Not Just Paleo. I'm your host, Evan Brand. Yes, my voice is weird. So you can try to hack air travel as much as you possibly want, and flying in a metal tube at 500 miles per hour at 37 to 39,000 feet above the earth, it's not healthy. There's no way. And so I think I picked up some type of virus on the plane. Who knows? I lost my voice for about two days, which actually ended up being sort of an interesting meditation experiment for me. I was able to really, really be in my own head more and not having to speak was interesting. It was like a two-day silent meditation retreat, except I didn't go anywhere to do it. So anyhow, gradually getting my voice back now, and I'm excited to bring you this new episode with Daniel Vitalis, who's a friend of mine and a fellow podcast host who hosts the show called Rewild Yourself, which is a popular podcast and one of the few that I listen to these days. Daniel's in love with the idea of human wildness, and he talks a lot in his talks and his podcast and all the work he does, talking about undomestication or removing the constraints that society has put on us, you know, putting on the ties and the suits and really removing yourself from what it is to be a human being on a natural planet. Daniel's also founded the website findaspring.com where you can look up local springs and you can find good quality water that if you have the lifestyle that allows you to go source it you can go do it Uh, he's been featured in the documentary film hungry for change which you may have seen and you can go stalk him online obviously on social media and look at the pictures of his foraging and hunting adventures which is what we're going to talk about today he recently went on a bear hunting experience which we talk a little bit about and then we generally just talk at a 30,000-foot view about historical roots of how society's gotten to the place that it has today. Pretty interesting conversation, different from the functional medicine conversation you're used to. One thing I do want to mention, something that I believe has helped me get my voice back faster, is drinking bone broth. I recently partnered up with a company called Kettle and Fire, and I'm going to be interviewing the CEO of the company shortly. But the long story short is that I've tested many different bone broth companies, and this is the only bone broth that I've actually tried that when it's put in the refrigerator, it turns very, very gelatinous and almost like jello, which tells me there's a high amount of amino acid content in this bone broth compared to the conventional store-bought bone broth. And they're allowing my listeners to have 20% off of your first order. So if you go to notjustpaleo.com slash broth, just like it sounds, B-R-O-T-H, you'll get 20% off. There's no coupon code needed. So get yourself some broth, even if you have your voice, and reap the benefits. More on that later. Let's get into the show with Daniel. I hope you enjoy. Daniel Vitalis, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me, man. Hey, so you just got back from a hunting trip, and that it, it just sounds incredible, the idea of going on an extensive trip with a bunch of guys. I couldn't imagine the amount of energy that you had to expend on this trip. Uh, Talk people through some of your adventures. You've been doing everything from hunting and foraging and gathering. I mean, you've really been practicing what you preach this year, so I'm very impressed. Yeah, well, you know, I've been into the idea of wild food for a lot of years, and um, 
that, and it's taken a lot. It's manifested in many different ways from simply like buying foods like wild rice and wild blueberries to going out and doing actual foraging myself or doing trading with people who forage. This year, I've really thrown myself deeply into the world of hunting and fishing and 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 accelerated, I guess, my foraging practice uh, for plants and fungi. So it's been, I've been deeply immersed in it this year. I just went on a five-day hunt down in North Carolina, and it was really eye-opening. I think a lot of times when people picture a hunting trip, they picture deep into the wilderness. My experience of hunting this year has been a lot around um, in the wooded areas uh, and forested areas around urban environments. And so I was down in North Carolina, Columbia, North Carolina, not, you know, deep out in the, you know, some national park somewhere, not, uh, you know, way up in the Arctic circle or some kind of really, um, you know, I guess deep wilderness area, but we were out in Cypress swamps down there and they just had that hurricane. So everything was real flooded. I spent a week waist deep in water hunting bear, hunting deer and hunting squirrel too, actually. And uh, it was powerful. Um, five intense days. I put in a ton of work. I went deep into the gnarliest swamps with the thick, you know, where you need to bring a machete to kind of cut your way through it. Hunting with dogs, um, and uh, and and like I said, really successfully hunting black bear, successfully hunting deer, and bringing home a couple bag limits of squirrel too. So really awesome experience. And I just want to be clear um, that it's for food. You know, I don't really hunt for sport, um, although you know my immersion in the hunting world has meant that I've met people who do, but, uh, and even worked with people who do, but I hunt for meat and, uh, my freezer right now is just overflowing. I got enough protein now that we head into the winter to get through until next season. Um, that was really my goal. And after this trip, I've really achieved that. So pretty exciting time. That's insane. Now are these bear? I mean, are they just hanging out in the swamp? What are they doing in that area? I didn't know that was their, their favorite habitat. Well, they're, um, you know, they're the, in the area that I was in, um, there isn't a lot of dry forest, you know, it's these cypress forests, they're wet, um, and they're thick and that's where those bear are living. And, um, so yeah, that's their habitat there. And, you know, something you and I were talking a little bit about off air, I think there's a misconception that bears, uh, particularly that black bears are endangered in some way. And I just want to really clear that up because black bear numbers, uh, not only are super sustainable, but they're on the rise. Um, I hunted black bear in, uh, so, you know, know, it's been a, it's been an amazing year for me. I mean, I never hunted bears before. I never even really thought about, I never pictured myself hunting a bear. I think if you had asked me a couple of years ago if I would ever hunt a bear, I'd be like, no way. I didn't really see that as even in, my, in the cards for me, but but I hunted several <laughs> bears. So so I killed a black bear in Maine. I killed a black bear in New Hampshire, and I killed a black bear in North Carolina just this season. And um, I've really fallen in love with bear meat, by the way. I mean, incredible. And probably even more so with bear fat. Um, for those of us who live in an environment that isn't tropical, access to saturated fats is is pretty limited from wild and from the wild environment. You know, we don't have, let's say, coconut. We don't have um, uh, palm fruits that yield uh, like palm oil, uh, red palm oil, for instance. We don't have a lot of saturated fat in the form of plant material, plant lipids. What we do have access to are are large animals that are rich in fat. And um, for me, what I've been cooking with for a long time is lard. So not uh, a wild food, not a food that I feel that excited about, but I really like 
saturated lipids for cooking um, and wanted to replace that. And so I've been able to cook with bear fat this year, which it's just been fantastic. But yeah, bear numbers are on the rise. Black bear numbers are on the rise. Their populations are very healthy. The hunts are really sustainable. And I guess another thing I want to say is that I think sometimes when people hear about hunting, they are picturing, you know, this classic kind of redneck character that cares nothing for the environment, who's just out there haphazardly killing. And I don't know that a lot of people who are uh, on the fence or maybe even against hunting or just maybe have never really been around hunting, I don't know if they fully realize the degree to which this is a regulated activity, um, regulated by states and sometimes by the federal government and then uh, based hunting um tags that we call them, the, you know, the number of animals that you could take, um, of a given species is based on recommendations from biologists who keep that in sustainable numbers. So for instance, where I live in Maine, I can hunt, uh, one deer per year. I get a tag for one deer, whether I take that with archery or a firearm, um, that's one deer. And, uh, where I just was in North Carolina, they issue six tags. You can take six deer. And if you get all six of those deer, they'll actually give you six more tags. Um, because the number of deer there is so high, uh, people are simply, cra- I mean, the number of deer you see dead on the side of the road, which equals a car accident. So not only is there a dead deer there and the loss of a deer's life, but there's also somebody's crashed car. You can imagine what happens is insurance companies put pressure on local biologists to up the number of deer that can be taken in the deer harvest, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas here in Maine, we don't have populations to support that. Another example would be here in Maine, if you wanted to hunt a moose, you have to enter into a lottery. There's just not enough moose to give everybody a tag. So this is all really regulated, uh, just like bear hunts. Um, and the number of bears harvested are, are being monitored to make sure that the populations don't just sustain, but actually that the bears stay healthy. Um, and there's a tremendous movement in the hunting world for conservation. I think a lot of times in the non-hunting world, we use the word environmentalism. And in the hunting world, we use the word conservationism. Uh, but I think a lot of people don't realize the degree to which hunters are part of the conservation effort, the amount of money we donate to conservation efforts, that our hunting licenses go to conservation efforts, uh, that we're participants in and uh, direct participants in conservation activity, um, and that hunting is a, a how the states manage game populations. So um, not only are we getting meat for the freezer and really the best meat that can be had on earth, I mean, we are getting the cleanest food possible, but we're also participating in the conservation of these animals. Yeah, well said. And I talked to you, let's see, that was what, a month or two months ago, the way time flies. When I took a hunting course, I actually found out that in Kentucky, the deer population is higher now since Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife's come in and has put these standards in place. They say now the population, we have almost a million deer in the state of Kentucky, which is not a huge state. And the population now is higher than before they started regulating this. And apparently, I mean, this is hard to believe. Some of the species of deer here have the the whitetails. They were either nearly extinct or they were extinct. And they actually had to bring in deer from Colorado back in the 1950s and 60s. Yeah, to start getting the population back up. Yeah, the hit, well, for, first I also want to add to what you're saying, um, which is that there the deer pop white tailed deer population is higher now than at the time of Christopher Columbus came here, um, due to a lot of changes in the landscape. And I'm not saying that this is necessarily a good thing because we have so fundamentally altered the landscape of North America. Um, I'm not, and, and not in necessarily in positive ways, but it's been positive for some animals. It's been very positive for coyotes. It's been very positive for deer. Um, 
So yeah, what the the thing is is that market hunting drove many animals to extinction on the planet, drove many animals into extirpation from their native uh, ranges, and almost led to the extinction of not just white-tailed deer, um, but we also had, at least here in Maine, we'd driven turkeys out, um, elk were driven high into the mountains. I mean, a lo- we've changed the landscape through what was called market hunting. And that's what happened to the bison, too. I mean, that was market hunting for hides, for meat. Um the idea, or even just to starve the Indians. Uh, that's turned out not to necessarily actually be true. So, um, really, yeah, that's a that's a that's a bit of a of a, a, a mythology that has. Yeah, I recommend, um, and if you haven't heard my show, actually, Evan, with uh, Dan Flores, uh, Dan Flores, the professor and author of um, two recent books, Coyote America and American Serengeti. But he wrote a real influential paper on what actually happened to the bison. And it's a much more nuanced and complex story than that one that got passed down, that this was like a U.S. government um, uh, attack on the food supply of Native Americans. It actually wasn't that at all. And in fact, the Native people were extremely influential in what happened to the bison because they were already bison hunters and they ended up kind of caught up in the bison uh, robe trade as well. So they, they were killing a lot of bison, uh, for, you know, to trade, uh, with the whites. So, so just a much more complicated story, unfortunately, than, than that sort of a real simple explanation. But, but going back to it, I always wondered what this idea of sport hunting was and why people did that. But what happened was after the, the, the kind of end of, this is an era where, where we had almost wiped out all of the so-called game animals of North America. It was just not much left. Um, because of the market hunt, this idea of taking care of the environment was starting to emerge and the first national parks were being made. So that was all kind of happening. And then this idea of hunters as conservationists emerged and the idea of the sport hunt came in vogue uh, as an effort to stop the market hunting, which was destroying animals. So people wonder what this sport hunting thing is. That's kind of where it came out of. And now there's this resurgence of this idea of the hunter conservationist slash meat consumer who gets their meat in this way. And uh, But this is how it's all come under state regulation, et cetera, et cetera. So the big picture story is it's been really good for turkeys, it's been really good for deer, and uh, hunters are participants in that. And it's turned out to be really good for black bears do. And so one thing that we can count on is that if hunters start to over harvest, then biologists start to limit the amount of animals people can take. That makes sense. Well, it makes me feel better about the Indians. I'd read that story and I thought, oh man, we're horrible people. Look what we did. So that's good. That makes me feel better. And then also the other lens and you've said it, You've said it. Well, maybe well not I mean, as- let me just say this: the result for the native people, the result for the native people is the same, whether it was done for that reason or not. So, right. I mean, it wasn't like it, it. It doesn't make it really much sweeter, but it does. It just is a more complicated story, I guess. Yeah, that makes sense. And then you've said it. You maybe not said it word for word like this, but the way that I've figured this whole human and hunting thing out too is that we're now we're the wolves, basically, is how it was translated to me from the. Department of Fish and Wildlife guys, they said, look, you know, mountain lion used to be here and wolves were here and now those are not. So we have to be the the wolves because you look at the amount of car accidents and blah, blah, blah. And I've seen it here just in the past two to three weeks. I've seen, oh gosh, I don't know, 50, 60 deer on the side of the roads wow. and highways here. I'd be pulling over, pulling back straps out of those. <laughs> we don't have that much roadkill up here. Uh, really? No, no, it's different. We just don't have the deer population, which is why we only get, because how many deer can uh, a hunter harvest off his um, regular license in, in Kentucky? Do you know? 
you get two. Yeah. So, and, and then you can apply to get two more. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, so, you know, I guess, I guess when I like look out at the landscape of it, what I see is that, yeah, we, are we the wolves kind of, do we do the same work that wolves do? No, our wolves, there is a big push for the rewilding of North America, which is really amazing. It's going to happen, of course, first in parks. And we see the reintroduction of wolves into Yellowstone, which is really cool. Um, one thing, you know, and I mentioned Dan Flores in his interview on my show, and I'm actually uh, right now listening to his book, his the audible version of his book, Coyote America. And it's talking about how uh, coyotes were really restricted to the Southwest. Um, they are a all canids, all of the, the canid family, uh, comes from North America originally. And, um, then wolves went and spread around the world, became circumpolar. Um, coyotes stayed there and wolves kept coyotes in the Southwest because wolves kill coyotes and coyotes are very, are timid around wolves. And, um, but once we drove wolves out of North America, that allowed coyotes to start to spread out and become, um, one of the apex predators on the continent. And now there are coyotes, not just all over North America, but <clears throat> there are coyotes, uh, in every city in the United States, literally every city. So, or every major city. So, I mean, they are everywhere now. So we've changed the balance, like you mentioned too, about, um, mountain lions. So we had lions all over the United States. Um, now, you know, here in Maine, we don't have them anymore. And, um, you said you don't have them there either. So we've driven out the, the predator population. What I would ultimately like to see is the reintroduction of predators. And I've been thinking a lot about this kind of a change in topic, but I've just been thinking a lot about how badly we need a predator, not just one that hunts the game here, but one that keeps us a little afraid too. Yeah. The, uh, man, I, I want to stop you there because that is exactly how I felt when we went to the Great Smokies. Obviously, you can't hunt in national parks, but we were on this trail and just the feeling knowing that we had just saw a bear 100 yards ahead on the other side of the road, that was an incredible feeling and one that is not matched nearly anywhere else in life besides that feeling like, wow, maybe I'm not the dominant species on this planet where I can just go wreck and control everything it was a it's a bizarre feeling to be among something bigger bigger and, and more powerful and than you yeah you know i uh we are so soft body that's another thing i think one of the things about hunting and I, let me say this too about hunting and, and i say this as a new hunter i certainly i don't want to come across as like as if i'm trying to to speak on hunting from a place of a, a lot of experience I'm, i mean i just don't i've really only been serious about it for the last year although i've been deep, deeply in it so it's easy for me to talk about it right now um but you, when you, and I, let me say this too, I think, I think in the same way that let's say that, a, um, I want to be careful and I want to be thoughtful and I want to be considerate as I say this, but I think it needs to get said that in the same way that if a woman decides in her lifetime to not have a child or for some reason she cannot have a child and she goes her entire life not having kids, there's an aspect of womanness that she didn't get to experience. She might make that as a conscious choice or an unconscious choice or circumstances may just create that or a medical reason may create that. But historically what we see is that, you know, women rear children and that's an important part of the development of a woman's, the unfolding of a woman's life. Um, there's this ancient idea of the three kind of phases of a woman's life, the, the maiden, the mother, and the crone. And um, these are uh, 
this is part of the journey of the maturation of a woman, not for every single woman, but I think if we look at women in general, we can see that. Similarly, hunting is something that every man physically capable of it throughout all of human history until very, very recently has done. Literally every single man. I mean, you there would have had to be in very specific circumstances for you not to become a hunter. So I think that it's the equivalent part of the journey. And when you think about the beautiful balance of this, women create life, men take life away. And that's the, that's the polarity of our gender within our species. And these, there's so much historical precedent, right? There's 200,000 years of this in our current form of us doing this. So women are the stewards of, of the gateway to life and men, um, men steward the gateway out of life, you know? Um, the, and, and I think part of the maturation of a man is dealing with the, um, the power of life and death and having to learn how to justly appropriate that. In other words, killing, right? That's the job, traditionally the job of men and doing that is really important to our maturation. So I need to say this first that for, for men, I think if they just choose not to hunt throughout their lifetime, that there's a very, a critical piece of their maturation that will never be um, seen, never come to fruition. And I think that there's a, a kind of boyishness that won't really, that it's difficult to do away with without taking this up, taking up the mantle of manhood. So w- one thing I want to add to that is that when you start killing things and taking things apart, um, especially, you know, cause what a lot of people do in the modern hunting world is they shoot an animal, they drag it off to a deer cutting place and then like, they get it back all packaged up as meat for themselves, or maybe they don't even eat it. But when you go through the whole process yourself, you just can't help seeing what's inside you because, you know, you take apart a deer or a bear in particular, um, even a smaller animal like a squirrel, what you're seeing inside that is incredibly similar, same organs, same bones, same basic tissues and structures as is in your own body. And you can't help but kind of come to terms with mortality. And you also can't help but to come to terms with how soft and gushy we are and unprotected and defenseless, our flimsy little fingernails, our blunt teeth, uh, without a weapon, we are, um, we are more of a prey animal. I mean, it's easy to, with a weapon, we are the dominant predator on our landscape, but without one, uh, we're more like food. And so it also kind of puts you in touch with two things. There's this, there's this dichotomy here between the part of us that's a predator and the part of us that's prey. And the part of us that's a predator is so ingrained because we've had so much cultural privilege and species privilege on the planet that a lot of us maybe don't realize that sometimes our basic fears, like the, a fear of being in the dark, for instance, a fear of being alone in the woods or lost, that these are prey-driven fears, that these are fears that come from the time when we were more prey. And because we have extirpated our predators, um, knock down. And there are, there are some places where they're on the rise. I mean, now that there's no hunting of lions in California, for instance, they're on the rise and they're killing people. Um, black bears are starting to come into cities um, or urban environments. Uh, so we're the, the population of wolves now, I, and I like this idea, are on the rise. So this is starting to shift, but we've been living without any significant predators. And I was down in the Amazon uh, a few years back and... Um, there are a lot of predators there, but primarily the jaguar uh, or jaguar and um, the uh, anaconda are what flipped me out a little bit. 
So I was there for some ayahuasca ceremony. And, uh, you know, when you're a bit inebriated and high on ayahuasca and you need to maybe go vomit or go have a bowel movement and you're going to step off that maloca down into the forest in the dark, it's kind of scary. You have this knowledge that you could be hauled off by a, by a big cat. And the other thing is, is that I had conversations with people. Uh, I, I have the tooth of a jaguar that, um, that had killed a couple people. Um, and they had eventually hunted and, um, also got amazing stories. I heard of, um, you know, them killing an anaconda, hauling it into the village, cutting it open and, and having one of the village, uh, children come half digested, rolling out of the belly of that animal. And when you have firsthand stories coming from people like that, you're like, wow, this is a real and present threat. It, there's a part of you that does not go into, uh, what would you call it? It's like just autopilot. You know, we can walk through our woods on autopilot. And exactly. And like I said, a moment ago, if you, if you don't have a child, if you don't hunt, there are fundamental initiations that you've missed out on, which means there are aspects of personal maturity that are hard to achieve. Certainly it could be, but it's hard to achieve without those. There's some aspect of being fully human that involves knowing that there are other predators in the environment that to which you could become prey. And I personally feel a little bit, I don't want to say robbed, but like there's something incomplete about my life because I can walk out into my forest and just lay there naked on the forest floor all day long, go to sleep and never have to worry about what could happen to me. And I think that's a bit of a travesty. I think it's unfortunate. Well, it's kind of like it's it's not a full sensory experience. There's something that's a little bit dull, I guess you're saying about the forest, knowing that's not there. Yeah. And, you know, I think sometimes about the work of uh, the writer David Dida, who wrote Way of the Superior Man, and he uh, talks a lot about the journey of a woman and the journey of a man. And he says that for a woman, she's driven by, and I know these are, are, are broad brushstroke gender assessments, and I know I'm being heteronormative and all that, but uh, so please forgive me, but... <clears throat> the way he puts it is the journey of a woman is about constantly seeking complete love that she can fully open to and devote to and that a man seeks complete freedom. And he talks about sort of, and you can see this in like, let's say we're just going to talk about movies that people watch, right? You know, when I go out of town, my girlfriend wants to watch romantic comedies, right? Movies about people falling in love and the magic of love. But if she's not around and I'm going to watch a movie, you know, I'm watching some intense action thing where the hero has to face all of these hardships. And, you know, guys tend to lean towards fast cars, explosion, shooting, intensity, blah, 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 blah. And women tend to lean on the other side towards love and connection and community building and babies and all those kind of things. And so as a man, you know, I've so much of my life been seeking experiences that take me to the edge because what he says is, and I really agree with this, that nothing feels like freedom, like being on the edge of death. And that's why I think we see men seeking such extreme uh, activities sometimes, things that where you could die, right? Racing cars, shooting bears, you know, things like that, right? That put you right at the edge because facing that down makes you feel so free. So in that way, not having that aspect of danger, I think what we end up doing is we end up oftentimes like seeking out that danger, that should just be present in our environment, but isn't. So we need to recreate it through what we call recreation or recreations. That makes sense. I mean, I think when you say that, I think of the guys in the wingsuits that jump off those massive cliffs 
Have you seen yeah, wingsuit yeah, videos? Yeah, right. Like, would you do that if you had jaguars in your environment? <laughs> it's like probably not. I wouldn't need to. You know, it's like every day is like a wingsuit. I don't know. That makes maybe not. But. No, that's a gr- that, no. That's a great. That's a great point, though. You're, you, there's industries that are being created due to the extinction of species in an area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, it's also also point out that there are definitely women who do that activity, just like right. there are men who are much more nurturers. But if we were going to look, you know if we were going to use a law of averages or something, what we would see is that primarily men kind of choose those, you know, my, and, and I'll say my partner, my girlfriend was an extreme athlete and she was a whitewater kayaker. So, but she almost, she almost only was paddling with men because it was mostly men who, who sought that. Um, similarly, there are men who, who seek the experience of nurturing and, and raising children and all that, but it's, you know, it's primarily, kind of split down the sexes. And I, I think, you know, if you look historically, where is that coming from? It's coming from the fact that every man in your lineage was a hunter all the way back to the Cro-Magnons um, and back before that into, you know, whatever relationship you, I mean, some percentage of your mitochondrial DNA, right? Somewhere up to 4% is because you're a, a Caucasian person out of Africa, 4%, as much as 4% of your mitochondrial DNA comes from Neanderthals. So you have the lineage of Neanderthal hunters, certainly the other common ancestors we could keep tracing back, the Habilines, um, all the way down to the Australopithecines, who were probably the first to start scavenging meat and were definitely a prey species. So our whole hominin lineage, males have traditionally put themselves at risk for the acquisition of protein. So let me ask you this. Are there personality traits that have been exposed or revealed that you did not know exist in your body? Like, is there some dormant switch that has been switched on now that you've been uh, engaging uh, in this? That's a cool question. That's, a, that's an astute question. Um you're a smart guy. I, I found <laughs> that it's been about, uh, I have this martial arts teacher, a uh, real wise, wise kind of sage of a character. And he constantly admonished me. Uh, he'd always say, Dan, you got to make peace with the werewolf. And uh, that's kind of thing that made sense to me at first. And then over the years, it's made more and more sense as it's unfolded and unpacked in my mind. And believe what he's saying is like, there's a couple of approaches, the fact that there's a werewolf in you. And and by the way, werewolf, what it means, where, W-E-R is old Germanic uh, in old English. I mean, it uh, means, um, no, I think it's Germanic, but it means man. Were means man, with means female. We see with preserved in the word wife means woman. Um, and we see where preserved in the word werewolf. Uh, it, where means man, so man wolf, right? And the idea is that in a man is a predator. And also there's a, a loving character and an emotional character and a nurturer, all that's in us, but there's also this predator. And this predator doesn't have a lot of outlets in our modern environment. Um, in our urban environment, in our politically correct environment, in an environment that's progressively more and more uh, vegetarian, vegan, PC, you know, where expectations on men to soften and blunt and completely reduce. I grew up in an environment where there was this macho man archetype that, you know, we saw in the Sylvester Stallone Rambo type movies, and we saw in the Arnold Schwarzenegger commando type movies. And it was always this steroidal, jacked up, veiny necked, bicep rippling killer guy. Uh, and then I've watched that change over the, and I'm not saying that was a good thing either, by the way. I think that's a, a caricature of one aspect of masculinity that got really overinflated at a point in our history. So I'm not in any way praising that. But I will say that I've watched it shift from that to a much more feminized male over the course of my own lifetime. 
And probably in the course of your lifetime, you, I bet you've seen some of that, but but by the time you know you came onto the scene, that had already been in progress. And certainly, who knows what it was like before? I don't know what it was like before I came on the scene. But we are certainly now looking at a world where that aspect of masculinity is really frowned upon, and there's not a lot of outlets for it. So why I'm kind of bringing that up is that I live in a culture today, and have been raised in a culture where where the aspect of masculinity that kills is really frowned upon. And it's yeah. still going on, but we've kind of pushed it to the shadows and most of us don't want to see it. And realizing that, you know, cause when I first started to kill, you know, my hunting started with squirrels and insects, to be honest, I love this idea of entomophagy. So, and I want to also for your listeners who don't know me, I want them to know that I forage for plants. I forage for mushrooms. Um, I hunt not only big game, but insects and squirrels. I mean, I, I take a very broad approach to wild foods and I, I don't want to come off as, you know, hunting, like I said, is fairly new for me and it's not the whole picture of what I do. But, um, I started with so much reverence and I went really slow and, you know, I would kill something and I'd almost be in tears and I would have to like really process it. And it would be like this deep spiritual experience for me. And as I've gone on doing it, you know, and the sort of death toll has, you know, risen, uh, by my hand, um, I've gotten more and more comfortable to a point that it almost is like, you have to make peace with, wow, I'm like, I'm like a efficient killer. And if I go deeper into that, I'll get even more efficient at it. And that I don't feel bad about that. And, at first I felt really apologetic and, you know, and, and it was reinforced by so much of my online community who was really kind of offended. A lot of people are offended by this idea. You know, you go online, you, I mean, Evan, I'm sure you've seen this. I can't just go, I can't, I can, but uh, the pushback is intense. If I just post a picture of a bear I've killed. Now I've got some right. amazing photos that I wish I could post, but people just freak out. Right. You know, I know. Freak out. I know. So, so well, it's like, and oh, if this, if we were having this conversation, I don't know how far. I mean, we maybe 20 years, maybe 30, 40, 50 years. It's it's debatable how far we would have to go back, but it would have been the the normal. Like you mentioned earlier, it would have been rare for someone not to have to be a hunter. And when you think when you say that, it makes me think the only thing I could think of would be, you know, some Mayan king who had the the runners that would bring the fish to him. You know, I couldn't think of anything uh, besides Well, like let king. let's break can we break that down because Yeah, who yeah. who would not yeah, let, hunt? Yeah, let, I, I want to know that. Great, 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 great. This is good stuff because, and this is really foundational to my work. My work in this idea of rewilding is based on drawing a very distinct, um, di a distinct distinction <laughs> to, to, to parsing the, the fine nuance here between what is civilization and what is human wildness. And those two things are opposed to one another. Um, another way to say that would be like, we, we sometimes don't, in our common parlance, we don't make a distinction between society and civilization. So hunting and gathering people, these are people who don't practice agriculture, who only practice really limited agriculture, live in tribal environments of foraging groups. There are still people like that on the earth. There's not a lot, but there are still some. They are not civilized because civility refers to cities and city-states. A civility or civil refers to a city. So uh, all hunting and gatherer groups through time are a society and they have culture, but they aren't civilized. Civilization is uh, based on agriculture, which is the growing of food. And so what happened, this starts about, 
usually we say 10,000 years ago, but more and more evidence stacks up to make it look like maybe right now we can push it back probably to 14,000 years ago in um, Mesopotamia, people start to farm wheat and they start to domesticate animals and they eschew and turn their backs on the natural life way of foraging. So when you think about it, all species throughout all of the earth's history have been wild food eaters until 14,000 years ago, people start farming. And when they start farming, they start not only domesticating plants, but they start domesticating animals as well. And usually we hear about how great that is. And we call it the Neolithic revolution. And this is the biggest step in our evolution. But actually, when you look at the fossil record, you see that it destroys our bodies. Uh, it brings in cavities, it brings in bone diseases, it brings in arthritis, and it brings in well, all these modern diseases we call degenerative diseases that are also called the diseases of civilization, diabetes, uh, heart disease, uh, cancer, et cetera, et cetera. These are largely non-existent in intact hunter-gatherer groups. So when you bring up the Mayans, we're talking about a civilization. This is a city-state based on the domestication of the grass known as maize. All, all civilizations or most civilizations are based on the domestication of a grass. Um, we see the Asiatic cultures based on rice, another grass, another grain, uh, wheat, barley in the Middle East. That's another grass or grain. Um, so we see that, uh, you know, all through the New World, of course, it was maize or corn. So these groups domesticate a grain and that grain allows there to be a surplus of food that wasn't available to the hunting and gathering group. And because there's a surplus of food, essentially what you end up with soon is somebody who rules over that food and that's what brings in the beginning of uh, hierarchical systems. So in hunter-gatherer groups, you have... Uh, only egalitarianism as a rule. Uh, everybody's equal. Nobody, even the chief of a tribe is equal to everybody else and is a participant. He doesn't sit back on a chair. Uh, I think that's really a funny piece of it. When we look at civilizations, usually the highest occupied um, position is a chair that you sit in uh, and roll over everybody from yeah. your chair. You know, it's very funny. But uh, so the Mayans, you know, as cool as they seem to us today, you know, and as romantic a culture, it seems like today. I mean, these are people that were cutting out thousands and thousands of hearts of living people, uh, you know, in their giant, you know, decapitation rituals. And um, so the Maya, the Inca, the Aztec, tech. Um, these are all civilizations. And because they're civilizations based on agriculture, and they all collapse, by the way, that's another thing about civilizations, but they, um, they have, they don't have equality. So they have kings and they have rulers who don't have to hunt, don't have to participate. But prior to, and, and it's important to know, you know, our evolution is, is millions of years and our current species has been around 200,000 years, but farming's only been around for, for 10 to 14. So typically we say 95% of human evolution exists prior to agriculture. And during that 95%, every man would have had to have hunted. And every woman, every man capable of hunting would have been a hunter. And every woman capable of childbirth would have had probably at least one, if not multiple children in her lifetime. So that only changed very recently, uh, very recently. So how far back? 14,000 years ago. Yeah, it's like a snap of a finger, really. Yeah, in, yeah. in the big, yeah, it's, it's big yesterday scale. in human history. Yeah. Right. I don't know if you answered the question about the light switch. Yeah, well, okay. Well, what I was saying before was like, a, is that, the biggest switch for me has just come, has been realizing that not only am I okay with the fact that I'm a, a killer of animals, but I actually really celebrate that about myself. And that is hard to say publicly here because I know people are going to hear that and some people are going to be really offended by it and they're going to think of me as um, less evolved, less spiritual, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
Uh, but I've actually come to realize that that is a, for me, is a, is a very evolved position um, and that I'm really comfortable with it. So I think the big thing, the big light switch for me was, was coming to terms with the fact that it's okay that I want to be out killing, that I want to spend my days out killing is okay because actually I'm supposed to be, because it's in my biology. That's just human ecology. And anybody, any man out there who is not okay with that, I think is out of touch with themselves and out of touch with their ecology. Anyone who takes a position against that is denying, I think, something inside themselves. And um, I think that being in denial is a really toxic position to take. Um, I understand why they take it. I once took it. I was a vegan for a long time. But uh, How many years were you a vegan? I was a vegan for 10 years. Yeah, and I think you talked years. about that. So, uh, you know, if, I think you talked about that the first podcast we did together. So people can go check that out too to hear more, yeah, more backstory. And, I, and, I a, and I'm sure you've covered. I it. did a podcast called "Why I'm Not a Vegan," which is a big exploration of all of these topics, particularly my case against veganism as a former vegan and as somebody who's a vegan. I'd say, you know, I don't know what percentile I would have been in. There's certainly people who've done it longer, but most people who do it only do it for you know a very short period of time before they walk away from it due to health problems. Um, 10 years is a long time, certainly not the longest, but I think I enough that I feel like I can speak with some authority on the topic. And um, yeah, so I've been on, I've been on all sides of this thing. Uh, but as I've worked my way deeper and deeper into the exploration of human wildness, I found that just like we see with chimpanzees, you know, they're hunters, the males are hunters, the females aren't incidentally or rarely, uh, but the males are hunters. Similarly, um, human beings, homo sapiens, were males are hunters, and um, this is an important part of our development. And I guess the biggest light switch for me was just coming to terms with that, making peace with it, and actually getting out there and participating in it and doing it and not feeling guilty about that because I felt really guilty. And part of the reason I felt guilty was not just the pressure from other people, but because you look around at the wrought, destruction that our culture has wrought, our civilization has wrought on the earth. And I think a lot of us said, I don't want to be a part of that anymore. I don't want to be a part of destruction. So for a long time, I saw this idea of hunting as just more of that destruction. Like, oh, great. Yeah. Like I'm going to be part of that. Now I realize actually without that, I'm not part of the ecosystem. I'm, I'm outside the ecosystem looking at it from some kind of spectator perspective versus actually being part of. So when we talk about the food web, I'm part of that. I'm like in that, just like the bear, just like the deer, just like the squirrel. I'm part of that. And a lot of people criticize that. And it's like, well, where does your food really come from? That makes sense. Well, for me, I, I don't even know why, but I, I have that same feeling where it almost feels like you're you're a bad person for having the urge, right? It's almost like you're doing something wrong in church. It's like this weird, oh, it's 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 taboo. But I've not gone through any conscious brainwashing that I'm aware of. I mean, I've not been exposed to anything that well, would make 14, me feel like years it. of civilized um, brainwashing so and indoctrination, you know? Ah, uh -huh, okay. That makes sense. Because like me consciously, I can't think of something I've been exposed to where I was like, oh, that makes me feel bad. But when you Are do you look really at things- I mean, because you were raised in the era of ecological awareness. And so, you know, prior to your generation and my generation, this wouldn't have been a thing. The idea that you exploit the earth was just the dominant paradigm. You were raised yeah. in an era where 
national parks and wilderness were being set aside. Uh, organizations like Greenpeace came into existence. Um, the idea of environmentalism was on the rise. Uh, we started to see more and more about protecting the... You grew up saturated in the idea of protecting the environment. I mean, literally True. saturated to the point that you're probably not aware that that is a new idea. And that so, makes sense. Yeah, so it's dominated your programming, even though... And that's a thing, uh, Evan, about taboo. The thing about taboo is that it's not explicit, it's implicit. So when there's something... It's like, um, I often talk about it with like eating cats. Like you don't eat cats and no one ever sat you down and explained that you better never eat a cat because it's going to offend somebody. You picked that up through osmotic effect. Like you just picked that up through osmosis. Your culture knows not to do that. And you learn not to do that without ever being told, you know, nobody had to tell you, you can't take all your clothes off as an adult and get on the subway. You just know you can't. It's a taboo. And the way that taboo works is it's, it's culturally reinforced without ever having to explicitly teach it. So environmentalism, as we were brought up in, is I would say it's, it's 50-50. There's a lot of good in it, and there's a lot of confusion and misinformation in it too. So do we want to protect our environment? Oh my, of course we do. But can we protect the environment by being non-participants in it? I don't think so. Here's what I think happens when we're non-participants in an environment is that we actually have no vested interest in the environment. We don't truly see the value of the environment except in some kind of abstract way. Um, and we don't ever really endeavor to protect specific things because we don't know anything about those things. So uh, I learned this from my friend, Arthur Haynes, and he, and I think you've had him on the show. Um, he really brought this home for me years ago saying that rather than teaching, you know, going out campaigning that people need to protect the environment, he brings people foraging in an environment. And if you go forage your, you know, reishi mushrooms and your spikenard roots, you know, in this one area, and then you hear they're going to build a Walmart there, you're like really going to fight that. That's your food comes from that place. But if you hear they're going to put a Walmart in a place you'd ever been to, you don't get any resources from, you have no connection to, you might think that sucks, but you don't really have an investment in that. I think that if we really want to protect the environment, we need to be participants in it. And the idea of human beings, because what ends up happening is human beings are outside to whatever, we're not really outside. It's more like we insist ourselves, right? The way that some organisms create a cyst around themselves when they hide from your immune system in your body. So insist, I mean, to put a cyst around oneself, to create a bubble around oneself. We insist ourselves within the environment with our houses, with our cars, with our clothing in such a way that we are non-participants in the ecosystem, we draw off the exploited resources of distant ecosystems without really any thought about where that stuff comes or where our garbage goes. We say we want to protect the environment and we do it in ways by like driving Priuses, which are about as toxic to the environment as any car is, but we, we delude ourselves that there's something eco and green going on and we don't actually participate in ecology at all. So as a hunter forager, more and more my life is immersed in environments. Resources come from directly from species that I interact with and I have deep in, I, I would say that puts me at least in a more, in a position of calling myself an environmentalist, environmentalist far more than most people who claim that. Most people who claim to be environmentalists are really just uh, social activists who go out, you know, yelling and campaigning and waving signs around, but you go like, hey, what's your actual participation in environments? And it's like, 
well, not much. So it's like, then maybe that's a misnomer. Maybe you should have a different name for what you do. <laughs> ah, okay. So it's like our brain, we want it, but it's getting, it's getting hijacked. Yeah, yeah. Not, not actually wanna... knowing, not even knowing the, okay, like for instance, you know, you tell people you kill black bears. Here's what you get. You're an asshole. <laughs> like people get mad. And, and I want to be like, have you ever actually encountered a black bear without being in a car? but actually encountered a black bear in the woods. Do you, do you know, have you experienced black bears? Do you know anything about black bears? Like what's your, what's your actual interaction with black bears or are black bears an abstract idea to you that you want protected, but don't actually know anything about? Like most people's real experience of black bears is a documentary, is Paddington bear, is Berenstein bears, is is some cartoon thing, is a stuffed animal bear, but is not actually interaction with bears. Seeing bears in the wild, encountering bears, eating bears, wearing bears. Uh, so, so it's easy to criticize people from a place of non-participation. Um, remember that food and medicine aren't things, they're living beings. Food is living beings. All food is living beings. Um, and most people have never met the beings. You know, I, I've talked about this a bit this year, but like I've been uh, ground fishing off the coast of Maine out of a gunkwit and uh, fishing for cod, halibut, and pollock a lot this year. Uh, or not a lot, but I filled my freezer with a lot of those animals. I grew up eating haddock. I grew up eating Pollock. I mean, Pollock is what was in fish sticks and stuff when we grew up. They have Vandy camps and, you know, McDonald's fish burger patties or whatever. Um, haddock, cod. I mean, to me, those were white fillets that you bought in a on ice in a supermarket at the little fish deli thing. I didn't know what the fish looked like. I ate it my whole life. I ate all three of those fish my whole life. I never saw one until this year. Now I know what that animal looks like and I've held that animal in my hands and I've felt that animal's last breath and I know where that animal lives and I know what it takes to go into the environment where it lives and I know what it takes to get that animal up out of its environment. And that's the difference between it, it being a, an abstract idea and it being a relationship with that species. So sometimes you get criticized by people who, about your relationship with a species and they don't even have a relationship with that species. And I think that's a, a kind of fundamental logical flaw that some people carry and I, and I carried at one point in my life too now does it when you first started gathering and hunting more foods at first did you ever have wow this is so different it wasn't in a package it wasn't a frozen cute little venison one pound brick it was actually a deer did that first repel <laughs> you at all styrofoam or? with like a little plastic covering over it um, the I'll tell label. you this. Did like, that first repel you? Because I know yeah. some people will say it does. Yeah, not the food part of it, but I, I, what did was the butchering part. And uh, here's why I think that is. is uh, I think that we have a soft limbic system that's underdeveloped because we didn't grow up seeing things cut apart and butchered. So yeah, like the first time you reach your hands into a body of a dead animal and there's a lot of blood and guts and, and there's shit. I mean, the you know the intestinal tract is filled with shit and the front end of that track is filled with just whole pieces of food. I mean, it's like I hunted a, a turkey quite a bit this year and um, you open up the crop of a turkey and there's all like whole food in there. I mean, there's like acorns in there and berries and, you know, it's buds of, I mean, it's like whole undigested stuff. And then at the backside of that turkey is poop, right? Seeing all that guts, spleens, kidneys, livers, hearts, you know, plus the trauma that your weapon's done, 
uh, pulling all that stuff out and butchering it down. Um, man, at first I had this like look of disgust on my face, left like, cause not like disgust, like this is so gross. Why would I do this? But like, ew, you know, like I hadn't been exposed to that. I didn't grow up doing that. Um, that's all been hidden away, right? Most right. people are eating the product of it, but, but not, but they have some surrogate in between that does that work for them in some shady location far away. Right. And they only see it as meat. Here's what, another thing I've noticed, this is really interesting. Um, when my girlfriend's there and I'm doing this and she's just amazing about it. And she is a, like I said, she was an athlete her whole life, an athlete, and she's a major protein eater. So she is so incredibly supportive of what I do. Um, she loves eating wild game and I fed her not just like deer. I mean, she's eating coyote, she's eating snapping turtle, you know, all kinds of strange things this year. Um, she's eating squirrel with me yesterday. So what I noticed with her is she's quite put off by it. And I think that's normal. I think women primarily, and I certainly, there's a tremendous amount of exception to this, especially now as more and more women are becoming hunters and the largest growing part of the hunting market is women who are hunting. But despite that, I think in general, most women who are pretty turned off by the seeing an animal killed and butchered, I think that's normal because that's work men did apart from women and then they brought meat home. What I noticed with her is once the animal's out of its skin and its guts are all gone and it looks like meat, she's absolutely comfortable with the whole thing. But it's when there's blood and poop and guts and organs and skin present and fur, it's like pretty off-putting, right? And I found it like that too. Um, but it's amazing once you get something down to where it looks like meat, it just, it's really easy because we are accustomed to seeing meat. But if we yep. had grown up around this, it wouldn't be a thing at all. I know my godson Wilder, when, you know, I butchered a snapping turtle with him a couple months ago. And, uh, I mean, this is a really intense thing to see. I won't go all into it, but watching a snapping turtle come apart. I mean, it basically, once you take its head off, it continues to walk for hours and hours and hours. It's like, it's a zombie. It's like, it's alive for a while while you're butchering it. It's dead. And yet it's grabbing onto you. It's grabbing your knife. I mean, it's very strange. He was, he's grown up on a farm. He's seen his dad kill lots of things. He's been there for the butchering of a lot of sheep and pigs and chickens and he's seen wild game and fishing and all that. You know, for him, it's not a thing at all. Like he doesn't get disgusted by it at all because he's grown up around it. But for most of us, we grew up with talking cartoon animals, you know, and the idea of animals are people just like us with feelings just like us because in cartoons and in the movies we watched, they had, you know, they always would show animals anthropomorphized as people. We get this really senses of guilt and fear and sadness and emotions that arise that I think are not actually natural or they're, they're alternative, not native. So think about the word alternative. It means to alter what's native, alter native, alternative. Um, I think our native emotion around this is comfort, but we've experienced a kind of alternative emotion that comes from altering what's native to us. And so, yeah, at first it really creeped me out and skeeved me out. And I've come to associate so many positive emotions now with a kill because it means meat in my freezer. It means meals shared with friends. It means I don't have to buy my food from an intermediary. It doesn't have to come from a slaughterhouse now. It doesn't have to be fed an inappropriate diet behind the walls of, of a cage or a prison. I get to get it, an animal that lived a full, wild, natural life, eating the healthiest food, being made of the healthiest stuff. I get to do all that myself. So that has become the dominant emotion I feel. And I actually really, just like I said before, making peace with the werewolf, 
it freaked me out a little bit at first, but now I'm comfortable with how much I enjoy the process of not just killing, but also butchering um, the animal down. I'm just, it's starting to become overwhelmingly positive for me. That's awesome. There's a, there's a, a year. I, I don't know if it's six years old, 10 years old. I can't remember what book it, it was. It might be this book here. I think it's, uh, what is it? Be- Beginner's Guide to Hunting Deer or something like that, that I, some book on my shelf about hunting. And there's a cutoff with kids where the author says once they reach a certain age, that's when it becomes hard for them. But if they are exposed to it before then, they're totally fine. And just like you, I, I was not exposed to hunting at all. So for me, I'm having to to basically do the extra work now because I wasn't exposed to it as a kid. So it's much, much harder to reprogram my brain, I guess. And it sounds like with you, it just happens naturally as an evolution, the more you do it. So it sounds like practice is well, key. Well, just yeah, you... immersion in it. Like like if you were decided, you know, that you, hey, you know what, I'm going to go into, uh, I'm going to become a nurse in, a, uh, emergency, in an emergency room um, and, or uh, a nurse in a, uh, a surgical environment or, you know, a doctor or a physician's assistant or something like that. You know, the first time that you see a human being opened up, it's going to be pretty off-putting, especially when you see them using the black, black and Decker tools on people. Right. But over time, as you desensitize to that, it become more and more commonplace and it eventually, you know, it's not keeping you up at night. And eventually you can talk about mundane things during a surgery, right? So the idea of a brain surgeon, you know, working on somebody's neocortex while they're having a conversation about the golf game last night seems appalling to me because that's not a mundane experience for me. But when you do it every day after a while, you know, and they start late in the game, right? They don't, they do that as adults. So True. No, I think it's an immersion in it. Um, it's like uh, any, it's like anytime you're around something new and dangerous. I mean, God, the first time you drive a car, it's pretty overwhelming, you know? And eventually yeah. it's like, wow, I can eat and text and find the map I need and drive at 65 on the highway. Somehow I can manage all those tasks now because it's become so mundane. So I think that's part of it too. Um, but I think let's get to what's more fundamental here. I think what we're really dealing with is um, probably the principal and primary driver of humanity. Um, certainly the driver of civilization. I think the work done uh, by uh, what's his what's his name Becker. Um, can't remember the name of the author who wrote a really famous book called The Fear of Death. And then a lot of really incredible research came out of there on the the topic is is the field is called mortality salience, and basically it's the awareness of death. Um, this is what's driving human beings probably more than anything else. And um, it's certainly what drives civilization, which is a fundamental war against nature, which I think comes out of our fear of death. And I think why so many people today are so freaked out by all of the stuff we're talking about is because it makes you come face to face with mortality. When you're in that blood and gut and gore, you're very aware that this is you too one day. It might not be, you know, this isn't like that. I love that movie Predator. You remember that with Arnold Schwarzenegger? Did you yep, ever watch that? Yeah. So the, yes, the, I did. Love this movie because the the premise of it is this alien big game hunter that goes to different planets and hunts the dominant predator of that planet. And they, this alien comes to Earth and he wants to hunt Arnold Schwarzenegger because he's like this incredible, you know, he's like a 10 point buck, right? you know, he's like this incredible specimen of humanity. And so he wants to hunt him and, uh, and he's got, he's more technologically advanced and his weaponry is more technologically advanced, right? And we're obviously that's not what we're going to deal with. Most of us are not going to die being consumed by a, a large predator, 
However, most of us are being consumed right now, as you know, by lots of parasites, lots of microbial and uh, protozoal um, organisms, and if not larger helminths like worms or flukes, right? So, and when when the moment that I'm dead, immediately those organisms are going to go to work eating me. I mean, I'm going to get eaten by things. I'm food for something. We want to push that away. We want to see humans are 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 cursed in a way, blessed or cursed, hard to say, with this half ape, half angel um, kind of dichotomy. We really love to put our energy into the angel part of us and away from the ape part of us. My work is always about pushing us into that ape part of us because I think that without the balance of that, we become mentally ill and divorced from nature. So the ape part of us has to come to terms with the fact that we're going to be food for something. The angel part of us is the part of us that fills our bodies with formaldehyde and puts them in concrete boxes and buries that in the ground so that we can never rot because we don't want to allow anything to ever eat us. I mean, how demented is that mentality? So all this hunting puts us in direct contact with mortality and that makes us mortality salient. And lots of research has been done on the neurotic behavior that comes out when you remind somebody of their death. And so I think sometimes when people are against hunting and they get angry about hunting or they're really turned off by it, what it really is, is a reminder of death. And that causes neurotic behavior in people until you finally come to terms with it. Well, get this. I mean, if you look on YouTube and you look at trending videos, never ever have I seen a hunting video trending unless it's unless like a bear it's in some not, lady's backyard, it's an you know, swimming in a swimming in a pool or something. No, but it's how cute often, kittens. Cute kittens. Right. Right. That's the but classic. how often yeah, but how often will you see trending videos of technology? So like a like a review of a new cell phone or a review of a laptop yeah. that completely takes you out of the element. That was a question I was going to ask you earlier, which we don't have time to discuss much more today. But when you're focused on technology and phones and more robotic AI things, it makes you feel good because it takes you away from that thought of death. And the belief, Did the, you f- the p- potential for immortality through technology. I agree. I agree. Now, this is just last question. I guess we only just have a minute. Um, do you fear death now? Did you fear death before you started hunting? I guess is a question. Did you fear death before hunting? And then now that you're immersed more, has that changed at all? Do you fear death less? Are you just more comfortable with it? Is it just make more sense to you? I mean, I feel incredibly blessed to do what I do for work. And, um, and I feel like I was in the right place at the right time. And that I, I, I know, because of social media have been able to make a career out of my own exploration of my own personal journey in mythology. And I've gone through many phases and I get to share those publicly. And I've talked a lot about the immersion into entheogens and the use of entheogens. And uh, it's not a huge focus of mine right now, but it's been a focus of mine in the past. And I talked earlier about doing ayahuasca and things like that and um, have done a lot of personal work on coming face to face with death. Um, and uh, wrote extensively about that in a magazine on my website called Rewild Yourself. I did an entire edition on death and the exploration of the death fear and coming face to face with it. Um, so I feel like prior to immersion in hunting, I had confronted a lot of aspects of death, but there was a lot that can't be explored intellectually. And that's more of how I was doing it intellectually, psychically. Um, Now it's been more viscerally and more um, physically. So I don't want to say I feared death 
but I'm certainly more comfortable with death now than I ever have been. Um, and I noticed this with a lot of hunters, a lot of hunters, when you're with them privately in the woods, and there's some amazing camaraderie between men uh, in the woods, I got to say, it's like relationships are forged amongst people who you never would think could even find common ground, but where they find common ground in hunting, and then these relationships get forged and things get said and shared that um, men wouldn't necessarily share in any other uh, forum. But a lot of men talk about their death and a lot of men talk about dying in the woods and how they'd like to die in the woods. And um, this, you can't help but come face to face with it. So I feel like for me, um, it's made me think a lot more about how I could die and how I'd like to die. Um, you know, uh, and there's some way that people fantasize in not even fantasize. They actually delude themselves that they might cheat death routinely. I hear it from people using, they use religion. I'll be risen up again. I'll be, you know, I'll have what's salvation and, and monotheism is salvation from death. So yes, I might die physically, but I'll be resurrected spiritually. You know, there's that whole way that we try to avoid death is through the spiritual resurrection. Um, and then there's more and more and more. We have this transhuman technological salvation from death. If I can just stay alive 50 more years, you know, technology for immortality will exist. People are deluding themselves that somehow they're going to live forever. They don't want to come to terms with it. For me, I'm not saying this is every hunter. Obviously, there's just a lot of hunters who are never going to think about these things. But for me, it's really put me um, in viscerally in contact with uh, the understanding that one day I'm not coming home. One day I'm, I'm yeah, just one day I'm, I'm going to expire. And I'm so immersed in the life cycle and the ecology that I don't want it. I don't want that not to be, I don't want that not to happen. Uh, just like I was talking before about different major, uh, moments in the life of a man or a woman that lead to maturation. The final maturation is the confrontation of death. My only prayer, um, if I could have one is that my death is a conscious one and not a shockingly sudden one. For instance, you know, a sudden car crash, a skiing into a tree, you know, where you suddenly die falling off something. Uh, I hope that I have a, a death where I can transition through it slowly and thoughtfully in a calm and setting. Um, and I'm not being ravaged by some, you know, some predator or some awful, painful disease or something sudden. So, um, it's made me think a lot more about how I die watching a lot of other things die, but, um, yeah. but ultimately, um, it's given me, it's scary at first to confront death. And then there's like a peace that it gives you. And I just think that without, I think that was probably pretty normal in the past. And it's uh, right now, unfortunately, people are more afraid of death than ever. And they're deluding themselves more than ever that there's some way that they could pull through forever, live forever. Makes sense. Makes sense. I'm sure we could chat for hours, Daniel. I know we got to wrap it up. We'll send people back to your website, danielvitalis.com. Check out Daniel's podcast, Rewilds Yourself. It's awesome. My podcast list has shrunk and shrunk and shrunk over the years. And Daniel, your podcast is one of very, 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 very few that I oh. download episodes from. And Thanks. your episode on why I hunt was awesome. Thank you. I downloaded your recent ones, but I haven't, I haven't heard I haven't heard some of the new ones yet. I did listen to part of that one with uh, Flores. Oh, cool. The the Cahouty America guy. I haven't finished it, so I need to go back and, and listen to his talk about the bison. Um, any any last words or, or resources people could check out? So Thrival 2, which is your supplement company. Um, I really enjoy the Sajandra. What I do is I take vitamin C, and I mix that with Sajandra, and then add a little lime or lemon juice to it, and it's 
and it's awesome. It's a nice little tonic. Oh, thank you. Well, I'd say, yeah, check out surthrival.com. I'll give you guys a coupon code. Um, Rewild gets you 10% off your order at my store. And uh, guys who, if you're interested in this idea of maturing into the masculine, I'd ch- check out my pine pollen products and my uh, elk velvet antler products. Um, in addition, uh, my Instagram at Danny Vitalis, I'm really active there. And, um, you know, obviously all my stuff is on social media. So people have no, no, not going to have a hard time finding that, but primarily my podcast, uh, rewild yourself is like my major outlet for communicating with the world and, and furthering these rewilding ideas. Cool. Daniel, thanks for your time and take care, Daniel. All right. I hope you enjoyed that episode. As I mentioned in the beginning, if you want to go check out some of that bone broth I was talking about, I'm actually going to go make some right now because I can feel my throat getting a little bit scratchy again. You can go to notjustpaleo.com slash broth. No coupon code needed. You'll be able to get 20% off your gelatinous, gooey, delicious bone broth. And I sent out an email about this, so if you're not on my email list, that's something that you can sign up for on my website. I don't spam people. I tend to think I write really good and interesting emails. I sent the email out to people about the bone broth, and many said, what about lead? Isn't that a huge concern with bone broth? And the answer is not for this company because they use all 100% organic grass-fed bones. If it were conventional factory farm-raised bones, And animals, oh my goodness, I would not touch that with a 10-foot spoon. Now, with this 100% organic, grass-fed animals and the, I guess, do you call them grass-fed bones? That sounds so pretentious. These are grass-fed bones. Uh, But they are. They're very high quality, and the herbs that they use inside of the formula, I believe it's simmered for, what, 24, 28 hours? Something insane. That's how they get so much uh, gelatin and other amino acids in the final product. And it's shelf-stable. I looked at the the containers that I have, and they're stable until, I believe, 2018. So it's maybe a one, two-year shelf life, something like that. It's incredible. Anyhow, notjustpaleo.com slash broth. Go get your 20% off. And in the meantime, if you'd like to schedule that 15-minute free call with myself, let's talk about your health symptoms, your health goals. You can also do that on my website, notjustpaleo.com. You can check out everything there. We'll talk soon. Bye-bye. He acts like it's all good, yeah, like everything's cool Guess I got a line that he leaves her She doesn't have a clue that he's terrible blues Why I'm in the tire, got to watch out, girl Don't wanna see her by her eyes out, girl Cause I've been watching, you've been hurting Let me be the one that loves you better